This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Welcome to episode 55 of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, the only podcast to take place entirely in the past. My name is Mark McGee, and tonight we will be talking about historical games. With me are two designers who will be making history tonight. Seth McCormick, say hello to everybody. Hey there. Hey, hey. And also with us is Dave Conklin. Hello, Dave. Hello, Mark. Whenever I whenever I say hello, Dave, I think about Hal 9000. Hello, Dave. Um, well, so both of you guys are new on the podcast, being first-timers, which allows us to once again have our new segment, the first-timer palooza. Now, we will start with Seth, because I wrote down Seth's name first. Seth, tell us a little bit about yourself you know, what you do and what got you started in game design. Okay. Well, my day job is as an educator. I teach art history um, at the college level. And so, um, you know, when I first started getting into game design, it was kind of with the idea of creating games that I could use in the classroom uh, kind of as a way to engage my students better and, and kind of bring the material to life. Um, I've only been designing games for, I, I, I guess it was only maybe a year and a half or two years ago that I, that I started um, really getting into it. And I am working on a game called Renaissance Rivals, which uh, has a historical theme. The players are taking on the role of um, famous artists of renaissance italy and competing to uh, obtain commissions and complete masterpieces and my professional interests here um, and my private interests in gaming have come together on this project and hopefully um, you know it's something that i will be able to build out from going forward you know thinking about other um, design ideas, other game ideas that have kind of bubbled to the surface over the course of my work on this project. Okay. So you, uh, you said you've been working on designs for a couple years now. Is, is this game that you mentioned, the, um, the historical art game, is that, is that the first major large scale project that you spent a significant amount of time on, or have you bounced around between several other projects? I've really been devoting almost all my time and effort to this one project. I've got a couple of smaller things kind of on the side that I have been picking up from time to time, but I wanted to really bang this out and um, kind of uh, through the process of iterating and playtesting and get it to the point where I can actually um, make use of it, make use of it in my teaching. And Fortunately, I'm, I'm now at a point, I think, where, um, you know, I've, I've gone through a lot of the play tests and um, it's mechanically pretty solid. So it's something I'm, I'm kind of ready to share. And, and I'm in the process now of, of um, making the, uh, the game available on the web so that maybe other educators or other gamers of an interest in the topic can uh, 
take a look at it. This also might be part of the process of iterating further and getting more feedback and kind of expanding the the play tester base for the game. Mm -hmm. So you've worked as a professional instructor for a while now then like that, that's not something so you've been a teacher for a while. Yes. Yeah. This is, uh, I've been teaching for about 10 years now full time. Okay. And so what, uh, what made you think about, uh, if you, if you started getting deeper into design within the past couple of years, what made you kind of connect those dots or, or get interested in the, the game aspect of using that as a learning tool? Well, I think it was really kind of the, the confluence of two factors. One, uh, trying to come up with new and creative ways to increase engagement among my students. Uh, a lot of my students are not actually uh, liberal studies or, or liberal arts majors. They are primarily art majors and graphic designers who take my courses in art history because they're required. So, you know, they're not necessarily students who come to the material with a pre-existing interest or who are kind of excited by uh, reading texts and, and writing papers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, you know, uh, one aspect of, of the process. The other was simply kind of rediscovering my own joy of games. In the last few years, I have young children, and as they've gotten older um, and gotten to uh, an age where I can kind of introduce them to some of the games that I used to play, like Dungeons and & Dragons and, and others, including more, you know, modern uh, strategy type board games, um, the thought occurred to me that this might be a way to combine my interests, my, my personal or kind of uh, recreational interests and hobbies with my, uh, my work as an educator. All right. And so you are a member of the illustrious and slightly Western Asheville chapter of the Game Designers of North Carolina. How did you get looped into into the group? It was actually through this podcast. I had been listening to a number of episodes and was kind of intrigued to find out that there was, in fact, uh, a group dedicated to board game design within North Carolina. And it was in, you know, I think really right around a year ago that the announcement was made about an Asheville chapter opening and so I contacted um, Julio, who founded that uh, chapter, and um, he was very welcoming and encouraged me to uh, come to one of the, the meetups um, where I got to meet him. And I got to meet a couple of the other members of the, the Asheville group. And that, that made a huge difference in terms of my commitment to working on this design and pushing myself, you know, kind of challenging myself to, you know, get to the next level in terms of getting a prototype made, getting it play tested. Um, I'm not sure how long it would have taken me if I hadn't had the encouragement of other members of the group, um, other members of the guild, you know, who I subsequently met, members of the, the main chapter at Unpub and Proto Atlanta. But it's been it's it's been a very positive experience because of that because of the community that I've found through board game design. Yeah, I I found similar to what you're saying the uh, the motivation to to work on the design and you know the stick to itiveness of of continuing on projects is much easier when you're with a group of people who are trying to accomplish the same thing. So yeah, what you're saying rings true for me and probably all of us who 
who've worked together in the guild to try to design some stuff. Julio Nazario, um, mm-hmm. you know what his output is. <laughs> so you know, like when when I was introduced to you know game design at that level, I realized you know this is something that I I can really I ne- I really need to take seriously and and see if possible for me to make a game that actually is fun for other people, you know, and not simply, you know, a purely kind of educational tool, because in order to be useful in the classroom, it has to be fun, obviously. Yeah. If you could, if you could think about what's something about game design that you have experienced now that it was either completely different than you expected, you know, before a couple of years ago, or way harder than you expected before a couple of years ago, something that maybe before you get into game design, you don't consider, but uh, through your time working on games, you're like, yeah, this is actually a major part of it. Something that I didn't even imagine would have taken this much effort. I think it's the sheer volume of playtesting and especially self playtesting, because, you know, even having a community of fellow designers or playtesters and going to events uh, where playtests happen you know, a lot of games require not just handfuls, but really dozens of playtests before they mm-hmm. even get to the point of of being um, a playable game. And, you know, at least for me, you know, I'm sure other people who are more experienced kind of um, can can make that leap more quickly or more efficiently. But for me, it was just kind of brute force mm-hmm. uh playing the game over and over and over by myself often in order to figure out what worked and what didn't work. There's no like magical formula. I guess maybe that was my main takeaway that there aren't really shortcuts that at least not that I've discovered that can, that can save you some of that work. It's just a matter of putting in the time. Oh, right. Yeah. And especially as far as playtesting, the the more different perspectives you can get. So even even beyond, yeah, playtesting it kind of with yourself to make sure it mechanically functions and then with other people to kind of get insights that you may not have had by yourself. Having a variety of different people, yeah, that, that goes along right with what I've experienced. The same thing that you're saying. Absolutely. So, yeah. I didn't even know how to playtest at the beginning. And I didn't know, you know, what was working in the game or what wasn't. The things that I appreciated about the game weren't necessarily the things that made them fun, made it fun for other people to play. So that that required, you know, getting other people to the table before, you know, just for the the first, you know, to to get over those first hurdles, figuring out where the game was in this, you know, big steaming mess that I had created. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right. So, Dave, we will now move on to first timer Palooza part two, Return of the Palooza with Dave Conklin. Dave. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a little older than the average G-Donk member, I think. Uh, so I've been playing games for a long time. You know, early on, it was kind of the standard, you know, life and risk and that sort of thing. Through middle school, kind of got into war games. I had a cool algebra teacher that, that had us playing naval war games in seventh grade, which was an awesome experience. I uh, got into D&D and role-playing, just went through a lot of different genres of, of gameplay. Kind of took a break for, for a while through my you know late high school, college years. And then when I started having kids, got back into playing games, went through you know like collectible 
uh, miniatures games, and then later like into Euro games uh, when those came out. So, you know, I think I've done probably every genre of gaming, um, but throughout all of that, I was always kind of designing, always kind of modifying. Uh, whenever we would, you know, play a game, the first thing I was thinking about was, you know, what are the variants that I can that I can do to make this game more fun or more interesting or challenge me in some different way. So all through that time, I, I guess I was a game designer, even though I wouldn't call myself that. It wasn't until later that I actually started putting, you know, actual rules together and coming up with components and designing maps and that sort of thing. I lived in North Carolina, Raleigh, for 16 years uh, up until 2012. And right before, right after I moved, I guess, uh, is when the guild started here in the area. So when I moved back uh, to North Carolina from Texas in 2017, I was like blown away that there was actually a group of guys getting together on a regular basis, you know, talking about designing games and not only that, actually publishing games. I mean, that just totally blew me away. So uh, once I found out the guild existed, you know, I, I got to that first meeting that I attended. I think it was just like Matt and James and fortuitously some other random guy showed up and he had a game that he had like worked on and his family and friends had tried and I mean, in the nicest way possible, Matt and James tore them apart. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was good because, you know, I, I had a game in my folder that I had brought. And because that guy was there, he presented his. I didn't take mine out. And, and that was the best thing that could happen because, like, I went home that night. just like, um, OK, I, I get this now. And like you said, Seth, I, I got to up my game a little here. No. Um, Something you just mentioned. So it's it's not uncommon that um, we will have a first timer attend a a playtesting meeting of ours, and they'll have a game, and they're like, "Yeah, well, let's play your game," and you know, we'll we'll play it. And of course, we never have any malicious intent in mind, but in, yeah. in offering criticism, sometimes it's a little bit uh, a little bit more critical than maybe was expected. And you know we don't always have the um, the proper gauges about how how critical to be while still trying to be helpful but not too overbearing. So occasionally, well, more than occasionally, it is often that that people, if they if they are not of the mindset that yeah, you know, I'm I'm new to design, so I probably have a lot of changes that I need to make, and you know, let me workshop this and and have that attitude of of trying to improve. A lot of times after the first playtest session, we, we never see them again, but you, yeah, that uh, was, that was a bit of uh, hyperbole. That was a bit of hyperbole yeah. for a fact. I mean, they, they were, they were not mean or malicious in any way. It was more yeah. like, you know, have you thought of this? <laughs> yeah. Now what, uh, what, what has helped to motivate you to con to continue on with design, even in the midst of, um, you know, critical feedback or, or things that you felt like you needed to change or, you know, everybody experiences these times where it feels like an insurmountable obstacle just to get your game where you want it to be. What are what are some things that keep you motivated in those directions? Yeah, I mean, my first few, you know, sessions that I attended, I kind of was kind of all over the place. You know, one day I'd show up with this brand new card game. Another day, another time I'd show up and didn't have anything. And then another time I would I would show up with just an idea, you know, and 
in, in all cases, just getting together with a group and kicking around ideas, listening to other designers talk about their ideas and where they were in the process with their current games just really helped me sort of get the picture of all of these things are, are works in progress and there's kind of like an art to this and there's kind of like a science to this. So there's, you know, certain things you can do, certain steps you can take and those steps are always in a certain order and, and you've got it like, you know, like Seth mentioned, you've got to do the play testing and you got to grind it out with the play testing. But there's also a little bit of art to it, right? You got to catch that certain combination of theme and, and mechanism, and we we often, you know, debate that as game designers, what what is more important and what drives the other. But just being in being in that setting and just trying to focus, eventually, you can, I kind of settled on, you know, one idea, and I and I said, you know, I just got to kind of take this one idea all the way through, and that that ultimately became the game Blazin, which is think why i was invited to this session because <laughs> it's it, got you know historic uh tie-in so yeah that's uh that's one of the things that i was thinking you know i i, I was coming up with you know topics that i would be interesting yeah and, and blazing was one of the um inspirations behind trying to put together an episode about historical games well thanks for uh introducing everybody to yourselves guys um, let's move on to the next section, the tell me something good section. Now, this is where we just say good things that we have going on or things that are worth announcing or um, or just positive things in general. I'll, I'll start with some stuff. I, I'm preparing to go to Gen Con again this year. Probably by the time this episode is posted, it'll be after Gen Con. So if you see me slash saw me there, I hope that I said hello and was kind to you. Um, and thanks, thanks for stopping to say hello, probably if that happened, but so I, I got, um, <laughs> I got a new copy of my prototype from game crafter and I'm excited cause it turned out to be pretty nice. So I'm pretty pumped up about, um, the newest, latest updated version of one of my prototypes going to be taken to Gen Con. Anybody else have something good to share? Sure. Well, as I, as I mentioned, I'm in the process of putting my game online, sharing it on the web. I finally got all the art uh, assets together, and um, that was very time-consuming part of the process. But you obviously can't have a game about Renaissance artists without art, right? So, <laughs> so <laughs> that, was, that was definitely a key uh, requirement before I was able to felt like I could share it more widely. Um, and, um, my intention all along has been, uh, basically to, you know, just put it out there and, uh, rather than trying to pitch it to publishers, you know, it's the kind of thing that I think might be of some value to, um, other, you know, people teaching, uh, the subject or teaching history, um, mm -hmm. more generally. And, um, so that's, that's my big news, I guess, you know, that's, that's kind of the ends. I'm getting to the, the, the end stage here of what's been at least a year's worth of, of solid work on this so that I'm, I'm also kind of excited to maybe tackle something different and change yeah. gears a little bit with a, um, some other uh, design ideas I've been kicking around. Yeah, that can always be lots of fun. Uh, wrapping up a project and starting another one, that's, that's a good feeling. Yeah, so for me, the good news is just it's been an incredible year from a sense of uh, attending uh, conventions. I, I went to Unpub 9, Proto Atlanta, and my very first time at Origins, all of which was totally unplanned and came together at the last second. 
I was really hoping that would continue on to Gen Con, but unfortunately, <laughs> I, I will not be saying hi to you at Gen Con, Mark. Yeah, sometimes uh, the last minute conventions, they just spring up on you and you're like, well, looks like I'm going to this one. It has happened to me in the <laughs> past. <laughs> yeah, I was I was kind of looking forward to Gen Con, but I'll, I'll, I'll go next year. Uh, the, the biggest news is that Blazin uh, has been signed by a publisher. So my first game is signed. Nice. Yeah. But <laughs> I've been told that that's like, you know, just the beginning of a lot more work. that's uh that's cool it's always cool getting something signed like we uh we like hearing you know when guild members have have another game signed because there's always every game that someone from the guild makes is just kind of a different a different uh perspective on a different topic and so just seeing the uh the broad range of types of games that come from the guild is really interesting and and seeing several different types of games like Blazin is categorically different than a lot of the stuff you know that that you know Daniel Solis or even Matt and Josh have gotten published in the past, and you know Julio's style of games. We got all these different types of games, and it's nice seeing such a, a breadth of games getting getting out there from the group. That's cool. Yeah, congratulations, Dave. That's really fantastic news. Thank you. All right, we can move on to the main topic since we started talking about Blazin. Uh, so I know. Seth, you mentioned uh, you went into a little bit of detail about your game um, earlier on, and I, I know that Dave, you ha- there's some similarities from I guess the angle you were taking with Blazin, if I understand correctly, as as to Seth, because you also have an interest in uh, history education. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I homeschooled all four of our kids, and um, so I've always kind of linked gaming and teaching sort of just intrinsically um and then in recent years game schooling is kind of a thing which is basically homeschoolers and and it could be any educator using games sort of implicitly as part of of teaching so yeah i totally totally agree with the stuff seth was sharing earlier and kind of Part of the decision of working on Blazin as my main first game was, you know, to have a game that wasn't just totally just superfluous, that it was, you know, had had some real meat to it. So taking the historical concept of heraldry and trying to put it in a game was was my main thrust with that. So for those of us who have less experience with heraldry, can you uh, kind of summarize that that topic in a way? Sure. I mean, it's heraldry is kind of like kind of like I was saying earlier it's kind of an art and a science you know during the middle ages starting early middle ages all the way up to the high middle ages the the creation of coats of arms for royalty as well as knights as well as all the way down to even the common man I guess was a historical truth <laughs> and so now you know in modern times it's kind of like it's still looked at as a, as a cool hobby a cool thing to study you know obviously people still have coats of arms and, and you can get your family's coats of arms but in a broader sense it's just kind of a, a cool hobby that I, that I was into and heraldry has its own vocabulary its own grammar its own syntax that that make up what's called the blazon, which is basically the verbal description of a coat of arms. Okay. So in the game of blazon, you're, you're in a tableau, you're sort of building this verbal description of a coat of arms 
using, you know, the mechanisms of the game. And basically I wanted to be true to the source material, but, you know, make the game fun. So the whole journey of, of bringing Blazing, Blazing out as a game has been trying to strike that balance between being true to the historical source material of heraldry but doing it in a way that it, it's a fun game to play. Yeah, so that uh, something you mentioned being being true to kind of the historical aspects of heraldry is that cuz I guess I guess it would be possible to have a game about heraldry that completely ignores all the history surrounding it and and I guess uh, you know would would that still be a historical game at least for the purposes of kind of your perspective and what we're talking about or you know what what is it that makes the game historical? If you had a game about Blazons, regardless of how it was handled, would it always be inherently historical just because heraldry comes from the past? Or does it have something to do with, you know, the treatment of the material or what? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, which I don't know that I have <laughs> the answer. I mean, all I can give is my perspective. And, and I think, you know, heraldry in particular, I think you if you asked people who are into heraldry, you'd get different answers, right? So somebody who's actually still in the English uh, United Kingdom's co uh, College of Heraldry would give you a different answer than somebody that's in the SCA, you know, Society for Creative Acronisms, who are doing herald or doing coat of arms for their the stuff they're doing. So, I mean, from my perspective, I, I have several different source books and, and different... Uh, you know, references I've found, and I've just kind of sort of consolidated that information, processed it. I mean, ultimately, that's what that's what I enjoy about game design is kind of finding patterns, categorizing, systematizing, and then kind of finding interesting ways of, of exploring the system. And so for me, that's that's what I've done with the historical heraldry information that I found. But I don't know the college of arms might come knocking on my door someday and say, Hey, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> so you, you spent extra effort to make sure that it focuses on the historical aspect of it, at least in the way that, that you yeah. try to represent it. Okay. Yeah. What, what are you thinking, Seth? Well, you know, thinking about, you know, heraldry as a, as a way of, um, introducing people to, to history or to a certain side of history, makes a lot of sense from from my perspective and also you know f fits with my own kind of motivations in working on on my own game design one of the things that you know a hist history textbook can't really convey is the the texture the flavor of what life was like in whatever you know period is is uh, is being covered or is is being studied and the focus on, you know, putting players in the shoes of somebody who was alive in, in, at that time and introducing them to, um, you know, whatever it might have been, uh, you know, a certain um, type of professional work or, or, or a certain kind of activity or a certain way of viewing the world. I mean, heraldry is, is not that I'm any kind of expert, but it's, it is itself a kind of system and it probably shapes the way, the way that individuals in those time periods understood or saw the world, saw, you know, made connections. 
among families and, and, and so forth and, and names. But the value, I think, in a lot of historical games is that they, they can allow players to kind of empathize or to imagine themselves differently, you know, to, to put themselves in a different time and place um, in a way that reading about history is, is generally not uh, always going to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that there's, um, I think you had mentioned some notes earlier about like Takedo, things that, games that have this setting that maybe takes place in a historical uh, time, but the the way that it views the history and the views, the way that you interact with the game and interact with the kind of world around it is is not really in a way that lets you view or learn anything about the history. It just lets you experience it kind of the way that we would experience anything these days. And it sounds like a, a different, maybe a, a lighter take on history than maybe what you guys are considering. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's definitely room for, for lighter games of this type, but, you know, Tokaido is an interesting example because it does, you know, as I understand it, it does uh, try to represent or, or, or recapture uh, something of the, the cultural history of Japan and, you know, this period when, you know, travelers along the Tokaido Road would pers- consult guidebooks and things that, that um, inform them about various attractions, the various views and, and rest stations along the way. But when you're actually playing it, you're playing it. I mean, it's it's a game about um, experiencing things in this sort of aestheticized way, and and it's very easy to play that game as a kind of cultural tourist. Uh, so you know, I think you know the most historical games are not necessarily, or most games set in in the historical past are not necessarily trying to teach players about history they're trying to create a an engaging experience or a, you know a, a, an enjoyable experience um for those players but if it's possible for a game to do both then you know then you have something pretty amazing and uh it's not necessarily doesn't necessarily require tons of like chrome you know or or uh complexity to do that as long as you know you are able to foreground, you know a, a particular subject or a particular dimension of the past that maybe people aren't that knowledgeable about, that can really open up uh, their eyes to um, to the 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 period and and give them an interest in learning more about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, from that angle, then is so the historical accuracy is is like a a part of presenting that angle of history and, and helping people experience it from, uh, you know, what the world was like in that time and, and you kind of see things from, you know, walking in those shoes. How much does the historical accuracy matter? Because obviously if, if the game is 100% accurate yet 100% boring, it's going to have a limited ability for anybody to learn anything from it. But, you know, how how much does that accuracy component matter from kind of the things you you guys are trying to get out of the games you're working on for, for me i mean it's it's kind of like two in two ends of the spectrum right one end would be total simulation total attempt to be as historically accurate and get all the details right and then on the other end would be just like a bolted on theme to some game that you've come up with that just 
totally just bolted on happens mm-hmm. to be history. And I think different games can strike different positions within that spectrum. And I think there's there's plenty of room for different perspectives on the same topic. You know, I kind of think of like Ancients era battle games, which is something that, you know, I went through a phase where, where I just played the heck out of those kinds of games. And you've got something like Battle Line. And I know you like Battle Line, Mark, right? Yeah. <laughs> On one end of the spectrum, which is... I can acknowledge you know, that it's a highly abstracted form of historical representation of battle. <laughs> right, right. And, but it's got that that thick, you know, ancients era battle theme. And then you've got kind of commanding colors, ancients sort of in the middle, you know, where you've, you're trying to reenact certain battles. And you've got, you know, units that somewhat represent the different types of units that were we believe were around at that time. And then, you know, the other end of the spectrum, you've got kind of like GMT victory type games where they're trying to, to be more accurate. So all of those I think are good. All of those have their place. It's just a matter of like finding, you know, the right balance that you're looking for as a game designer that the uh, market is there for and just kind of going all in on that. That's my thought. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, you know, speaking for myself who studies history, who teaches history, you know, I have a lot of tolerance for, you know, complexity in the service of, you know, historical flavor, you know, for, for Chrome, mm-hmm. uh, basically, um, you know, the, the term that we use to refer to all the little special mechanics and rules exceptions that help to convey a, a particular historical theme. But I recognize that, uh, you know, this severely restricts the appeal often of those kinds of games. So, you know, historical accuracy I think in the past or, or traditionally has been more of a concern among, you know, within the, the, the wargaming uh, niche of the, the, the board game hobby and maybe even served a little bit as, as a, in a kind of gatekeeping way, you know, back when games like Advanced Squad Leader or whatever required, you know, days or weeks or whatever to, to, of study to master the rules. Uh, that was that was one way in which you know wargaming kind of set itself apart. But you know, for my purposes, if I want to introduce people who are not really gamers uh, and people who are not necessarily uh, kind of coming to the table with a, a thirst for you know historical uh, immersion, then I have to I have to simplify and streamline the game in a way that that makes it enjoyable. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not so concerned uh, about strict accuracy if the game is if the if the game is succeeding in, you know, making making the subject interesting, making the theme or or the the period interesting to players. Um, You know, as an example, uh, as a more specific example, more concrete example. I would uh, mention the way the the kinds of options that are open to players in choosing a role or or a character within a game. Thinking about uh, my own game about you know Renaissance artists in in Italy in the, the 16th century, I was faced with this the, the issue that the vast majority of them, of course, were men. For my students, you know, many of whom are female. Um, that's just one additional barrier if they feel that 
you know, that that in order to engage with the game or, you know, the the allowance that the game makes for them is, is limited in this way, then that's going to be one more obstacle to engagement. So I consciously, uh, you know, made a, made a strong effort to include more options to play uh, women artists. Um, and there were some, you know, not very well known uh, today, but there there were a number of figures um, at the time who, you know, uh, were able to pursue art as a as in a, in a sort of professional capacity. Usually, women who had renounced marriage or devoted themselves to a religious life as in a, in a convent had that option. And so, I think you know, while in the context of the game where you have you know Leonardo and Michelangelo kind of battling uh, for supremacy with you know, slightly more obscure figures like Sister Plautilinelli, you know, there are certainly going to be people who who quibble with the accuracy of that. But for me, it was much more important to make the game accessible and to make the game inclusive, because that's that's another aspect of history as a subject that I think turns a lot of people off the sense that it's just this story of the the heroic achievements of, of dead white men and there are other kinds of stories that maybe you know uh haven't been told so much but that you know games could have a role in 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 telling um and in sharing with people so accuracy i think you know in in the context of a simulation it, it certainly can make for some very interesting designs uh, but in terms of you know uh, finding finding a broader audience it's it's just as likely to uh, be an obstacle as a as a a benefit, really. Yeah, you mentioned immersion, and so one of the things that I find uh, about about games that that kind of focus on the immersive aspect is if they just leave it to here are the facts, here are things that are that happen, then it's much harder to kind of feel that you are being immersed in this fiction. But if you include like stories of people and here's some, here's some uh, narrative flavor um, that, that definitely increases the immersion. But when, when looking at history, you mentioned, you know, these uh, historical figures about these are the individuals that shaped history, which, which is kind of a, a way of looking back at history that maybe doesn't capture all the nuances. What are, what are some of the um, considerations that you've made as far as like using historical context in a way that is maybe more immersive by having some of these, these uh, flavorful stories or things like that, or, or like characters, but while, while not including some of these biases that may actually change some of the way the history is viewed. I mean, cause I guess history is always viewed from some sort of angle or I don't know, you guys are history experts. Um, what are some of the considerations about, about, um, using some of these flavorful things in history that may introduce some sort of bias? Um, well, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with player agency and um, you know, making room for different viewpoints within the context of, of the, the, the game scenario or, or gameplay. You know, the, it's been um, pretty well established that like Euro games, for example, have this uh, slightly problematic track record in terms of the way that they depict the history of colonialism. You know, you have games like um, Puerto Rico, where there are 
tokens that are kind of euphemistically referred to as um, colonists when, you know, they actually kind of seem to represent dependence of the economy on slave labor. And so, you know, there are plenty of examples of games like that where the story that, that's being told either kind of rehashes certain tropes of, you know, some certain kinds of triumphal uh, narratives of Western exploration and, and conquest and discovery um, at the expense of, you know, representing or reflecting the viewpoints of um, other people, other groups, you know, uh, indigenous peoples and, and so forth. More recently, you had the whole controversy over uh, five tribes uh, from Days of Wonder, which um, did include slaves in the game as, as resources. And it's, you know, it's set in this loosely kind of Arabian Nights themed fantasy setting and is not by any stretch a historical simulation. Yet when uh, some of, uh, you know, the initial response to uh, this depiction of, of slaves in the game was critical. Um, the publishers uh, kind of defended uh, the the um, design choice on the grounds of historical accuracy. And you know, ultimately, of course, they they changed gears and um, made what many people felt was the right decision to replace the slaves with fakirs, um, and that made uh, you know that took care of the problem for for a lot of players. Um, but I think there's a larger issue, which is that, you know, it's it's difficult in telling stories about the past to give players that feeling of heroic achievement and uh, without, you know, kind of whitewashing history or without uh, reinforcing and and re- repeating uh, some of these kinds of historical biases, some of these these um, biased perspectives. Yeah, just in the like way telling the past, telling the story um, through the eyes of the winners, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like history, you know, as as it comes down to us, is is definitely a story of of triumph and achievements. But professional historians, you know, in the academy, there's been a really concerted effort for that's you know um, starting some decades ago to challenge those ways of telling history. And you're starting to see that spill over into board game design, too. Um, You know, there are examples of games like uh, This Guilty Land, for example, or uh, Cole Worley's uh, Pax Pamir, which which try to challenge some of those kind of accepted or or established uh, narratives about the past. You know, Pax Pamir is a game about what was called the great game, this this struggle for, for control over um, uh, in Afghanistan that that was waged between the British and Russian empires in the in the 18th 19th centuries and the the history that many people know of that period is a very romanticized history in which um, you know British spies uh, are conducting a kind of cloak and dagger um, missions and uh, you know the 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 whole story that's kind of captured in um, novels like Rudyard Kipling's Kim, but the game takes a totally different tack. It invites players to take on the part of Afghan leaders, tribal leaders, who are trying to negotiate these um, this this very problematic 
uh, kind of p- position caught between these two competing empires. So I think, you know, examples like that show that it is possible to create a game that tells a different kind of story. It just really challenges us to think outside the box a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I, I totally agree with all that. The only thing I would just kind of add on the end is that it's definitely not just a game designer problem, right? It's it's a problem for, as you mentioned, the, the scholarly uh, historical groups, you know, in the field of medieval studies, for example, as I was doing some research for Blazin. I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, controversy within medieval studies themselves in terms of, you know, the way that some uh, medieval symbols are being sort of co-opted by extremists, you know, and, and used in in ways that they, you know, weren't intended. So the, those scholarly groups are, are dealing with, with the same issues that we are dealing with as game designers. And how do you uh, represent history, but, you know, do it in a way that's inclusive and, and doesn't alienate folks? Mm-hmm. A thing I was wondering about is what, from the angles that you've taken in your historical game design what are some of the strengths and some of the things that have really worked well that have come from using this historical theme and this historical perspective from your games i know dave you've mentioned that you know in blazon you can actually create a legitimate useful coat of arms through gameplay so that's kind of something that i'm thinking about is like because you're using like real history as like a setting and and the thematic way that it integrates into the gameplay. You know, that would be a strength that you can actually create a legitimate, accurate style coat of arms. Um, can you expand on some of those strengths or, or add any other strengths that you've seen from just using historical settings for, for your designs? Yeah, I mean, for me, like like you said, it, it was just being true to that, to that source material of heraldry, coat of arms. I mean, the, the coat of arms that you have at the end of Blazon, you're you don't necessarily want to put it on a, you know, in a frame and hang it on your wall. <laughs> it's, you know, even though it's a legitimate coat of arms, it's not necessarily one that you might want to just claim as yours. Um, but I think just being true to that and, and trying to give people wet people's appetite for, you know, what is this, this whole thing of heraldry um, in terms of like the, the concerns around, any trouble spots that I might get into, I kind of avoid the whole thing by just describing the player as you are, you know, a pursuivant, which is the the term used for a young herald trying to earn your way into the College of Arms. I don't have a lot of narrative, you know, around mm. around that, and so it's kind of I've abstracted that part so it, to so as to not put exclusivity into it. Um, but even within, you know, the modern College of Arms, there's a little controversy around coat of arms being granted to to women. So, you know, I tried to tried to avoid that that uh, that mine field, and mm-hmm. I've just tried to keep it as constrained and as focused as possible, just on the the language of heraldry. And I guess the the language of heraldry has enough. Uh has enough substance and, you know, systematic nuance to it that, I mean, obviously that's that's the foundation of kind of the game mechanics that you use. So there's, there's enough there that just focusing on the actual real-life 
a you know system and process of creating a coat of arms is it, there's a there's enough legitimate stuff there in real life that it can be the backbone of a real actual engaging game i hope so <laughs> yeah, I, I think so and, and hopefully it's a it's a springboard to people to you know if they've had a mild interest in it uh to to research it further you know and, and who knows what doors that will open right they could go down sort of the genealogy rabbit hole and, and get involved in that or they could just become more interested in medieval studies as as a whole i know there's a couple of different guys i've met at like unpubs and stuff that are doing uh, medieval theme games and i know that's nothing new but uh, it's just fun to see kind of that community of, of games game designers that are tapping into sort of new nuanced areas of medieval medieval studies you know there's a guy doing a game called calligraphy where you're kind of designing uh, a page from a, a page of calligraphy from a document in medieval times and then um at least one other guy, which I'm kind of drawing a blank on now, uh, doing something along those lines. But ultimately, you know, that's that's where I'm hoping to go with it. I, I just hope it kind of encourages people to to dig in a little bit more to the history behind it. Dave, I'm curious because I haven't had a chance to play the game. Um, if you could describe a little bit how it works, and and particularly, I'm wondering, you know, how players go about putting together. The I forget the term that you used, but the um, you know the description of their their blazon uh, is it is it more of a kind of puzzle game or do, do they have some fle- some cre- room for some creativity in terms of the you know the the elements that they that they select to create their coat of arms? Sure, yeah, I mean there's there's different um, what are called devices, different elements that you can add to your coat of arms, and you're sort of constrained to the the board it has certain spots where you can place certain elements um you know heraldry i could have made the game like totally wide open where you're building on just a blank slate but trying to strike that balance again between gameplay and and source material i've kind of constrained you a little bit to to making certain kinds of of coats of arms or certain kinds of shields but within that framework you can you know try different things there are like goals within the game. So there's kind of like a, a set of public goals. So trying to score points by playing, you know, really good elements to the board as well as trying to achieve the distinctions or, or the goals uh, as well as getting some set collection. But it's interesting you bring that up because I, I do need to come up with a solo version. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I, I could see the solo version being much more along the lines of kind of where I think you're going is kind of an aesthetic, uh, more like personalized representation of, of a coat of arms as opposed to, you know, just trying to achieve some some public goals that everybody's competing for. So there's a lot of space to play with, even though it's, you know, I'm even constraining it from what it could be. Does that yeah. answer your question? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it sounds um, like there there could be a lot of room for you know, exploration of that those mechanics. You know. And one kind of one of the hooks of the game is that at the end, when you've built your tableau, you've got your blazon laid out. There's an online tool where you can type type. Right now, you have to type it in. Eventually, I want to have it where you can scan it, and it actually renders the coat of arms as a as a PNG or a JPEG that you can you know, post to social if you want, or you can, Oh yeah. 
use it as your a starting place. You know, if you really want to design your own, you you could use the elements of the game uh, to do that. Wow, that's a great hook. Yeah, Seth, are are there things that um that you've noticed with with your designs that have have really benefited from um from some of the historical perspectives that you've taken and and ways you've integrated the historical aspect to it some things that that have really worked out well for your designs um yeah well you know one of the things that uh interests me and inspires me to to work on um on this these topics is communicating how you know developments within the arts for example or within the kind of cultural you know, attitudes of the time, how those influence history and how the, the role that those, those have changed, have played in determining the flow of, of historical events. And it's something that I try to incorporate in, in my game in Renaissance Rivals by looking at the different uh, subject matters of, of artworks in terms of the kind of ideological role they played within the development of, of, of Renaissance culture. So, you know, in a nutshell, basically, what you're looking at in the case of Renaissance art is this conflict between the rediscovery of antiquity of ancient Greece and, and Rome and ancient Greek and Roman art, which was viewed at the time as, as pagan and sinful, in part because of its focus on the human body and the nude and the Christian values of, of that time. So the, you know, the different kinds of artworks that players compete for, depending on whether they are classical subjects from drawn from, from say mythology or religious subjects, those determine the players' movements around the board. And one of my ideas was that, you know, as a possible kind of uh, optional rule or, or expansion to the game, uh, you could, th- there could be an, an element that tracked these kinds of shifts as, you know, players, you know, uh, as, as, pl- as players' choices took them to one side of this spectrum or the other, um, that it could actually have an impact on gameplay. So, you know, part of the, the, the period that's ref- represented in, in the game is this moment when uh, religious fundamentalism took hold in the city of Florence and there were these massive bonfires called bonfires of the vanities where, you know, people would um, get all worked up and, and throw their most valuable possessions, you know, these, these uh, luxury items, paintings, mirrors, uh, books, all kinds of things onto the flames as a way of uh, showing their rejection of worldly, worldly uh, goods. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, certain choices that the players make during the game may ultimately change the, um, you know, the, the end game scoring. If you have been uh, steadily kind of plugging away at these, these classical subjects, and then you find yourself at the end of the game with, you know, a bunch of works that, might at the time that potentially ended up being consigned to the flames, then that can that can um, represent a penalty to your your score at the end of the game. A lot of times, you know, games like this one where players are competing to achieve certain goals, they they have they're they're limited to this purely kind of economic uh, game, this sort of zero sum game that doesn't necessarily 
tell you so much about the actual values that people held at the time or the way those values changed over time. So that's kind of a goal for me. I'm not sure that it's something that can really be that that something that that a, a game can accomplish without adding um, maybe an excessive amount of of complexity, but it's something that I'm kind of working on uh, developing and and think continuing to think about as I go forward. Yeah, that's like some some interesting uh, nuance to the era that probably very few people are even aware of that that could provide some you know a a different look at at how you know artists' work was even considered at the time. Yeah, so that, that's an interesting idea about using using some of these nuanced things that that really happened that people don't know about to impact the gameplay. I mean, because, yeah, I think that learning through game decisions um, about something is is a way that uh, those lessons can really stick with you. You know, if, if the actions that you take in the game and the way the game uh, changes the strategic relevancy of, of certain actions, that, that can make you consider it in such a way that you will retain some of that uh, information even after the game. Yeah, I think that's really the key. It has to be you have to put these things in the player's hands. They have to they have to emerge from the decisions that they're making rather than just happening to them. So in a much earlier version of the game I had uh, was basically a deck of event cards. And these were things that just happened to players. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know they appealed to my own sensibilities as a historian, as somebody who's interested in creating a kind of simulation. Um, mm-hmm. Because when I played the game out that way, it actually did a decent job of, you know, tracking the different uh, wars and and conquests and and shifts of of government and so forth that took place in the period. But it, I think, you know, in the course of playtesting, I found it just left a lot of people cold. You know, if you weren't already interested in that mm-hmm. history, then it it then you wouldn't pay attention to it because it wasn't. It was wasn't really to essential to the gameplay, and it yeah. wasn't uh, something that players had control over. So making it making it part of making you know the changes that take place, uh, making those the result from the players' actions is, I think, the 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 best and the most uh, efficient or effective way of getting your players to uh, identify you know, with their, their characters, with their roles and, and bring that history to life. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you guys wanted to add real quick at the end of this? Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the only thing that I had put in my notes that I, we didn't really talk about was just, um, you know, just if you are going to design a game that is in a historical context, definitely consider getting lots of source material and, and, you know, different sources. I think we'd kind of touched on that, that history is written by the, by the victors, <laughs> but you know, there's, there's enough uh, awareness of that. I think now that you can find different viewpoints for, for any historical era. And so, you know, do the research, get the different sources and give it time. No, no pun intended, but, uh, Designing a historic game, I think, takes time. You know, it's not, I guess, I guess there's some game designer somewhere. You might be one, Mark, that can just like come up with an idea and just bang it out. And a week later, it's ready to go. But no, I found I'm, with I'm lazy, real slow. <laughs> I'm one of the slow ones. 
<laughs> I found with blazing that it, you know I had to I had to put it on the shelf a couple times and come back to it and you know and it, it wasn't so much like game mechanics it was more like how do I unveil the history the the source the the true authenticity of this in, in a way that that is still true to it I guess is the only way I can say it so. Yeah. Give that some time to, to percolate and, and to come out. That's all I would say. All right. Yeah, building on that, I mean, it occurs to me that that um, both of the games that we've been talking about that, that you know that these are these are labors of love. Like heraldry is a subject that you're passionate about, Dave, and and if you if you weren't, you wouldn't have created it. But the you know these kinds of games, I think. You know, they are they require a really deep investment on the part of the designer and they're not necessarily going to be the most commercially viable. You know, I think it's a, a tribute to what you've achieved that that Blazin has been signed um, and that shows that, you know, I, I think that's that's a great sign that, that people are open to new themes and maybe um, slightly more obscure themes if if the game works and if the game is fun uh in my own case you know the renaissance is a period that's really been done to death in board gaming and modern board gaming and so i never really went into this with the idea that this was a game that was necessarily going to sell but i've really been carried along i mean the my the motivation has come from my own passion for the subject and also maybe some of my you know, my privilege is as an educator, I, I am able to force my students <laughs> <laughs> to, to play these games. Uh, so I have like a captive audience here. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very different from designing other kinds of games. Uh, I think, you know, in, in, in ways that are good, but also maybe have their drawbacks if they, you know, if, if historical games find, if they land, if they find an audience, then that audience tends to be very supportive. Um, that's true, for example, for a lot of you know the heavier war games. They don't have mass appeal, but their the, the their fans are really really dedicated. But you can't you know you can't go into it thinking that that it's going to be easy or that it's going to it's necessarily you know going to find any kind of commercial success. That that can't really be the the primary motivation for doing it. All right. Well, um, thanks for taking the time to to talk about um, about your experience working with historical games and your perspectives on, on things that you faced and considerations you've made while working on these, and the advice that you've given to anybody who may be thinking about this subject or just interested in general. So, if any of you listeners would like to discuss this episode or just talk to us in general, we have a guild on Board Game Geek. You can go to podcast.gdofnc.com. That will redirect you to the guild on Board Game Geek, um, and we welcome feedback and comments and questions and and all sorts of stuff over there. Um, we also have a group Twitter account you can follow at GD of NC, which stands for Game Designers of North Carolina. Um, Seth, if anyone wants to communicate with you and and laud your nuance and thorough understanding of history, or you know mock you for being a, an instructor as a profession, how would they reach <laughs> out for you? Uh, yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at cardboard prof, 
That's that's also my handle on Board Game Geek, and I've got a uh, a blog that I, I restarted after a long hiatus. That's where I'm going to be um, posting some of the uh, files for my game called, uh, which is uh, www.cardboardprofessor.com. All right. And Dave, if anyone would like to reach out to you to congratulate you on your game Blazon, or to say that they uh, don't agree with the way that you view history, how would they do that? <laughs> uh, they can go to my website, blazongame.com. That's B-L-A-Z-O-N-G-A-M-E.com. And on there, I've got my email as well as my Twitter, which is underscore Dave underscore Conklin. But underscores are hard to find, so you click the link. Um, All right. Yeah. Um, I like the way you're trying to stir up controversy here, Mark, with the, <laughs> among the, the listeners. <laughs> I'm just acknowledging that people can either appreciate what we say or not appreciate what we say and still be valued for their opinions. If anyone wants to mock me for the silly way that I sound on the microphone or congratulate me for making it through my first three episodes as a new podcast host. You can reach me on Twitter at mmark40, and you know we can talk about whatever. All right. So that... One, one last thing. In, oh. in the words of... In the paraphrased words of Winston Churchill, those who fail to learn from this podcast are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> yes, you'll be playing this podcast on loop until you learn <laughs> something from it. Um, let that be a lesson to you all. All right, so uh, that's a wrap. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will catch you later.